Isaiah chapter 40 and get Numbers 23. Isaiah 40 and Numbers 23. We're going to begin in Isaiah. Our subject is, is God finished with Israel? Is God finished with Israel? Isaiah 40 and Numbers 23. Let's begin reading Isaiah 40 verse uh, 8. The grass withereth and the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. You all believe that? Amen. Now look at verse 15. Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. So picture a set of scales and you have a little bit of dust on one side and you have the weight on the other. And the dust doesn't do much. The middle of the verse, Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. Verse 17, All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. Dear Heavenly Father, please help us as we study your word this morning. Lord, help us to understand biblically how important your people are. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we are in Isaiah, and we are getting... Sometimes we really become self-important, don't we? You know, we. how many of you are glad to be an American? I am. Amen. But you understand that doesn't make us any more valuable in God's sight than if we were a part of another nation. The nations are as nothing to God. But there's one nation that's very special. Look at Numbers chapter 23. Numbers chapter 23, verse 8. Remember uh, Balak and Balaam and trying to curse the nation of Israel? He says he can't do it. Look at verse 8. Numbers 23, verse 8. How shall I curse whom God hath not cursed? That is a verse that every person that believes in replacement theology ought to read. Now, we'll come back to what replacement theology is in a little while. But verse 8 again, How shall I curse whom God hath not cursed? Or how shall I defy whom the Lord hath not defied? For from the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. Lo, the people shall dwell alone, and shall not be reckoned among the nations. The nation of Israel is not to be reckoned among the nations. All of the nations are as nothing to God. They're vanity. They're they're like a bit of dust or a drop in a bucket. But the nation of Israel is not to be reckoned among the other nations. They are a very special people. The question before us today is God finished with Israel, and the resounding answer of the Word of God is no. God is not done with the nation of Israel. Now, how many of you, that is the, the, the way that you have always been taught. You have always understood that Israel is God's people. He's not finished with them. How many of you, that is the basis for your understanding? That's why this message is going to be so important for you today. A question that I often get from missionaries on the field, they'll email me, they'll ask me this question. How can I answer the attacks of replacement theology? 
We get that question in just about every meeting where we go and, and preach. We get the question about replacement theology. We're going to be looking at that this morning. And you say, I don't know what that is. You will know more than you ever wanted to know by the end of this message. The other thing that I want you to understand, and, and I appreciate your attendance. This, this series has been so well attended, and your attention has been great. But sometimes, I remember I hadn't been here very long, and a lady got mad, um, and she said, I, I was teaching on doctrine in the Sunday school hour, and we had combined all the Sunday school classes. And this lady said, my grandson doesn't need doctrine, he needs the Bible. Isn't that funny? And there are a lot of people that think if you teach on doctrine, that's just stuff for theologians. That's not something that the average person needs to understand or to, to grapple with. Well, I want you to understand that the beliefs of a few led to the death of millions. You need to know what you believe. This church, if I'm not, obviously, if the Lord doesn't return, I can't be pastor here forever. Y'all are going to need a new pastor here. You are going to determine the direction this church takes, not the next pastor, because you're going to know what the next pastor would need to be able to answer to be the pastor of this church. Amen? These things are vitally important, and as we go through this, you're going to find that you may have already been influenced by some of these people. We must understand that in our day, Israel is under attack. We continue to call on Palestinians to end incitement against Israel. And we continue to emphasize that America does not accept the legitimacy of continued Israeli settlements. What does that mean? The legitimacy of continued Israeli settlements. Now, he was talking about the West Bank here, but right now Israel is under attack for their settlements. Netanyahu just answered that. He said, the things you call settlements, we call Jerusalem. The time. That's the applause at the UN for rejecting when he said that we can't have Israeli settlements. That's the applause at the UN. The time has come. The time has come to relaunch negotiations without preconditions that address the permanent status issues, security for Israelis and Palestinians. Borders, refugees, and Jerusalem. And the goal is clear. Two states living side by side in peace and security. A Jewish state of Israel with true security for all Israelis and a viable independent Palestinian state with contiguous territory that ends the occupation that began in 1967 and realizes the potential of the Palestinian people. All right, so notice what he said, and we spent some time on this last year, but I want to remind you, when he talks about Palestinian state having contiguous borders, what that's saying is he, needs, he wants to cut Israel in half. Now, let me ask you something. Did God promise the land to Israel? And the other thing that we must understand is the land that God promised to Israel is much larger than the current nation of Israel. So here's the question. If the United States stops defending Israel, they will have no allies in the world. We are it. And according to Genesis chapter 12, I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. The, the basis for liberty and sustained life in this country is our connection to Israel. As someone has said, I think it was um, 
Uh, Leonard Ravenhill, the old revivalist, he said, if God doesn't destroy America, he's going to need to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Why haven't we been destroyed? Because of our protection of the nation of Israel. But you've got to understand, I asked you, how many of you, this is the basis for your understanding of world affairs, and you are all on our side. But you're going to see by the end of this message, that is not the position of most of Christianity. They do not agree with us. The first thing that I want you to see is that God loves Israel. God loves Israel. Look with me at Jeremiah chapter 31. And for this first section, we're going to be going to a lot of scriptures. So have your Bible ready. Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 3. The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. God loves Israel. And notice the kind of love that he has for them. It's an everlasting love. Now I'm going to ask you a very technical question. How long is everlasting? How long does everlasting last? Forever. So does God still love Israel? He does. Look at Zechariah. Zechariah. Matthew, go back. One book to Malachi, and the book right before that is Zechariah. Zechariah, chapter 2. You might want to put a ribbon in Zechariah. We'll be in Zechariah a lot. That might help you. Zechariah, chapter 2, verse 8. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, After the glory hath he sent me unto the nations which spoiled you. For he that toucheth you... Toucheth the apple of his eye. How many of you ever heard that phrase? She, she, the, uh, his daughter is the apple of his eye. That comes straight from the scriptures. Israel is the apple of God's eye. He loves them. He loves them. And that hasn't changed. And there, then we understand that Israel has been scattered. It's called the diaspora. Do you know what diaspora means? Walking around in circles. And so after AD 70, remember in Israel, Jesus Christ ascended into heaven around 35, 36 AD. 70 AD, Titus, the Roman general, came to Israel and sacked Jerusalem. They, they were tired of the rebellion of the Jews, and they destroyed Israel, destroyed the temple. Uh, Masada happened and the, the the Romans had surrounded Masada and they were up on a, the Jews were up on a mountain at Masada and some of them were trying to escape because the siege lasted for years and they're starving to death and according to Josephus I could have brought it in and given you the actual citation but according to Josephus he was a Jewish man who was a Roman historian at the time of Masada he said that he personally witnessed more than 500 crucifixions a day outside the walls of Masada. Every Jew that was caught was crucified by the Romans. 500 a day. There were so many crucifixions that there was no wood left in Jerusalem. They couldn't, there were no trees. They were all cut down. So if you go to Jerusalem, to, the, to the, um, the garden there, the Garden of Gethsemane, and they'll say, this tree is a tree that Jesus Christ prayed under. That's not true. All the trees were wiped out to crucify 
Jews. That's how awful it was for the Jews. And that began the diaspora. They went everywhere. And God had His blessing on them. And because of His blessing on them, many people hated them. But their scattering is temporary, not permanent. Look at Luke. Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. Verse 24. This is Jesus Christ talking about what it's going to be like. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. That's the scattering, the diaspora. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So when were the times of the Gentiles fulfilled? 1948. That... The Bible says that the Lord will return when the fullness of the Gentiles come in. That fullness of the Gentiles is when the last person gets saved before Jesus Christ returns and the rapture takes place. But this idea right here that the, until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled, the times of the Gentiles were fulfilled after they had died by the edge of the sword, after Jerusalem had been trodden down by the Gentiles, that's the Romans, and now they've been brought back into the land. So that that is temporary. That scattering... Is temporary, not permanent. And then I want you to see that God will save Israel. Now, all of this is important. We're laying a foundation. Is God done with Israel? No. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And if you listen to these guys who hold to replacement theology, we're going to hear from one in a minute, they have this concept that, it's on, that only in the Old Testament do you find promises about Israel. That's what you'll hear over and over again. Apparently, they don't have 1 Corinthians chapter 3 in their Bible. Look at it with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and look at verse 14. But their minds were blinded. This is speaking of the Jews. For until this day remaineth the same veil, untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. So what he's saying is to the Jews... When they read the Old Testament, there's a veil over it. They can't see Christ in it. All right, look at the next verse. But even unto this day, when Moses is read. They understand what it means by when Moses is read. That's the first five books of the Old Testament. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it... Will you mark that? It. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord. The veil shall be taken away. Now, you've got to understand, in the Old Testament, God dealt with the nation of Israel and individuals pertaining to the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, God doesn't deal with large groups of people. He deals with the individual in their heart. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's an individual thing. But here you see, when it, the nation of Israel, shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be removed from their hearts. God is not done with Israel. He is going to save them. Look at Zechariah chapter 12. This is such a sobering verse. Zechariah 12 and verse 10.
And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. The cross, right? And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. I want you to picture this. The day when the nation of Israel, when the blindness is removed, when the veil is removed from their hearts and they see who Jesus Christ is, they're going to weep. We crucified Him. Can you imagine how... How many of you, and don't raise your hands, have ever looked back at something that you did after you came to the Lord Jesus Christ and you look at it with such a heartbreaking remorse. See, I can't believe I did that. Imagine how the Jews are going to feel about their Savior, Jesus Christ. Look at Hosea. Go back just a few books. Hosea chapter 3. This is a sobering passage. Look at verse 4. Hosea 3 verse 4. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king and without a prince and without a sacrifice. Now remember who that prince is. The prince is Jesus Christ. Without a prince and without a sacrifice and without an image, and without an ephod. Remember, the ephod is the garment of the high priest. And without teraphim. Afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and shall fear the Lord and His goodness. When is this going to happen? In the latter days. In the latter days, God is not done with Israel. Israel will be saved. Look at Romans chapter 11. <clears throat> Romans chapter 11. One of these days, I, um, I want to plan to do uh, a short series on Romans chapters 9 through 11. There's no way that God's done with Israel based only on Romans 9 through 11. That's all you would have to have in the Bible. Without all of the other verses, just Romans 9 through 11 would tell you God's not done. But look at this, Romans chapter 11. Let's begin reading in verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. Now, now let's just stop there for a second. When we go into the next section of this message, you're going to see people that through ignorance are blind in their own conceits. Through ignorance, they are blind in their own conceits. They are conceited about being Gentiles, how God, they, they believe that God has thrown away Israel, that God divorced His people, that He has thrown them away, and we as Gentiles are now superior to the Jews. Through their ignorance... They are blind in their own conceits. The Apostle Paul, it's, it's almost like the Holy Spirit knew that was going to happen. Now look. Let's start reading in verse 25 again. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery. Remember what a mystery is. It's something that can only be known if God reveals it to us. Lest you should be wise in your own conceits. That blindness in part... This happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Now, isn't that a clear verse? Yeah, they're rejecting Christ right now. Now, yes, blindness has come in part. That means that some Jews will receive Christ now, right? Some Jews will receive, but some won't. 
Most won't until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. That blindness is not permanent. Is that what the text says? All right. Verse 26. And so all Israel shall be saved. Now, sometimes that really causes people to stumble, especially here where we give a definition for all. What is the definition for all? All means all, and that's all that all means. Amen? So all Israel shall be saved. What does that mean? And here's what people ask. Does that mean every Jew in the world is going to be saved? Well, it says all, doesn't it? Well, all Israel that is left after the two-thirds are destroyed in the tribulation period. You've got to compare Scripture with Scripture to get the actual definition, right? All that are left. Zechariah, we're not going to take the time to go there today, but we've looked at it before. Zechariah chapter 13, verses 9 through 10 or verses 8 through 10 tell us very clearly that two-thirds are going to be brought through the fire and cut off. One-third shall say, the Lord is our God, and I'll say, you are my people. So all those that are left shall be saved. Then look at what it says, verse 26. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. So it's very clear that God is not done with the nation of Israel. God is going to save the Jews. He is going to save Israel as a nation. But when it shall turn to the Lord, He'll remove the blindness, the veil from their hearts until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. He is not finished with Israel. And then not only that, but Christ will personally appear to Israel, to the Jews in their land. Look at Isaiah chapter 59. Verse 20, and the Redeemer. Do you see that? Who's the Redeemer? Jesus Christ. Uh, we, it, it's defined for us in Titus chapter uh, 2, verses 13. It says, uh, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, and then it says, who died that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. That's our Redeemer, right? That's Jesus Christ. So the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. Transgression in Jacob. As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord. My spirit that is upon thee, and my words which I have put in thy mouth, shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth and forever. Christ is going to return. He's going to appear unto them, unto his people, and they are his people forever. Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14. Let me ask you, is God through with Israel? No. It's very clear in the scriptures. Zechariah 14.4. You know what, let's start reading in verse 1. Zechariah 14, 1. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations, as when he fought in the day of battle, and his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley, and half the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it 
shell and half of it toward the south. There's going to be a great battle where that, where that uh, mountain cleaves and Jesus Christ will appear unto them. And here's what I want you to see. Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. They will be his nation forever. Jeremiah 31. The Bible is our authority in these matters. Amen? We believe every word of this. Jeremiah 31. Look at verse 35. Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinance of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar. The Lord of hosts is His name. If those ordinances depart from me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. So here's the, if, the sun, if the sun stops shining, if the stars and the moon stop their orbit, if that ever happens, then Israel won't be a nation. So let me ask you a question. Again, very technical, theological stuff that you average plebeian church people can't quite grasp. But let's see if you can get it. You know, we great theologians understand these things. But you just knuckle-headed church people, you can't get this stuff. Is the sun still in the sky? Does the moon come out at night? Yeah, are the stars still there? And are they done by ordinance? Is, is there a time when the moon is going to shine in different phases? Yeah, yeah. That means Israel will be God's nation forever. Isn't it amazing that people don't get that? They can't understand that? How many of you lowly church people can get it? See, that's the problem with this whole idea. And if you haven't been here for the rest of this series, what I'm saying is I have no more access to the Word of God than you do. If you're born again, you have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you. You have just as much access to truth as I do. I am not your priest. I am not God's only interpreter of the Word of God for this church. The Holy Spirit is the divine interpreter of the Word of God. He indwells all of us. Amen? And we're just brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Let's not ever miss that because that is the position. Remember, that position is attacked by most of Christianity. Now, so we've decided, based on the Word of God, is God finished with Israel? No. Now, some of you are thinking, then we can pray and go to Bob Evans. No. No. I don't want you to miss this. Now, I've, I've identified the Word of God as our authority. Would you all agree with that? Now, you need to know that not everybody believes that. There's a man, his name's Brian McLaren. You can see he's right, he's right here. And remember, God can never use a bald man. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. Remember what happened to the kids that teased Isaiah for being bald? Get thee up, you bald head. God sent the bears and they ate them. Don't mess with bald people. They have a special place in God's heart. So I shouldn't have done that. You've got to watch out for the bears. All right, now. But this is Brian McLaren. He wrote this book. He wrote this this book on establishing a new form of Christianity. Now, here's where this. Be, how many of you think we need a new Christianity? Anybody? No, not the old one's okay for me. There's a great song. I'll stick by the old book. I'll stick by the old stuff. But here's the idea. It's very clear in the Word of God that there would come a time when men would not endure sound doctrine. They're going to hate it. Brian McLaren. Just about every Bible college that's not a Bible college that we would associate with, a very conservative King James school, all of the other schools are influenced by Brian McLaren. Uh, the young men are coming out of Baptist Bible College in Springfield loving Brian McLaren. 
Now, I'm not saying the school endorses McLaren, but all these young men that are going to start churches are being influenced by Brian McLaren and Rod Bell and this new form of Christianity called the Emerging Church. And they love all this stuff. And you're going to see why. We're on to the second question. How does the Bible have authority? It's the authority question. What do we do with the Bible? Now, you've made a very strong statement in the book. And you say, for a new kind of Christianity to emerge, we need a new approach uh, to the Bible. I mean, it's, it's so true. Our, our approach to the Bible now is kind of like railroad tracks. It, it puts us in a track, and we can't get out of it. Uh, and uh, for us to see the kind of change we need, we, I'm not recommending throwing out the Bible. I'm recommending changing our approach to the Bible. So the old way is the Bible is like a, it's like a set of railroad tracks. And once you're in it, you can't get off it. Amen! And asking important questions about how we use the Bible, how we derive authority from the Bible, how we give authority to the Bible, that, that sort of thing. Now, this is a sacred cow. So this is a very, very important question. Now, people believing the Bible, it's a real sacred cow. How condescending is that? I wish he was here. You're stupid. But anyway, pastor, you're not showing grace again. Man, I'll show you the same grace Jesus Christ did. You blind guides, you liars, you have your father the devil. That's what Jesus said to people, to religious leaders. That's who he identified. Why did sepulchers full of dead men's bones? You search, you encompass the globe to make one proselyte. And when you have made him one, you have made him more twofold child of hell than you yourselves are. Matthew chapter 23. That's what Jesus Christ said about religious leaders. How do you deal with it? Well, the, the, at the core of the issue to me is the metaphor we use to describe what the Bible is. And the metaphor we commonly use is the Bible is a constitution. I mean, even people who don't use the word constitution that's how they that's how they treat the bible you know a constitutional lawyer senator congressman a supreme court judge they're going to quote article this section this subsection that and we quote book chapter verse but you know the bible itself is not a constitution uh, and if you say well what is it in the book i propose the bible is a library it's a collection of documents and uh, uh, a collection of documents does almost the opposite for us uh, of what a, a constitution does. Now, the downside of a constitution is the right, wrong, good, bad. Yeah, we're, we're going to get into arguments about, and it's about power, really, in the end. You know, we have arguments about the authority of the Bible. It's really about the authority of the people interpreting the Bible a lot of the time. Now, this is where it starts to get crazy, though, because now you're inviting conversation, inviting... Uh... Ah, well, we have big arguments. Should we be over the Bible, interpreting it, under the Bible, sort of submitting to it. Amen. My suggestion is we should be in the Bible. We should be in the conversation because none of the questions are still open and we're still part of the conversation. If you say, is the Bible a good constitution? It solves all questions, tells everybody what to do. Well, we've been arguing about it for a long time and we aren't any closer to all agreeing. But if you say, does the Bible do a good job of stimulating conversation? It's fantastic success there. Well, in the past, apologetics has ruled, right? Now we're changing the conversation, huh? Well, the irony there is we're trying to use the Bible to prove things when people don't start with confidence in the Bible. I mean, you know, that, that's, just, that's where we get in trouble with it. So. How silly is it? Why in the world would I use the Bible when people don't believe it? Let's use the Bible to have conversations. Let's not use it to, as an authority to say whether something's right or wrong. 
That's Christianity, folks. That's where we are. That's one of the most influential men in modern Christianity. Don't, don't miss this. If you go to the Christian bookstore, that's going to be right out front. That book right there will be on the... Right, right as you walk in the door, that's what you're going to see. Not everyone believes that God is not finished with Israel. Not everyone believes this. I'm going to show you another video. This man, his name is Gary DeMar. How many of you have heard of Gary DeMar? A few of you. He has a website. It's called American Vision, and it was very influential in this last election. The reason that it's very influential in the elections is because they believe in Reconstructionism. They want to, they want to reestablish Christianity as the governing influence in our country. That's not what we want to do. We want to lead people to Christ. Amen? But that's what he's wanting to do. Why does he want to do that? Because he believes that it's his job to establish God's kingdom on this earth. But I just want you to let, I'm going to let him speak for himself. The church-Israel distinction uh, created by dispensationalism is just that. It's a creation out of, out of whole cloth. Uh, so what he's saying is that to say, for us to say, as we teach, uh, based on the Word of God, that Israel is separate from the church. According to 1 Corinthians 10.32, you have the Jew, the Gentile, and the church of God. Three distinctions. He's saying that that is a creation by dispensationalists. It's not found in the Bible. That's what he's saying. I don't see any such distinction in Scripture. Uh, Jesus in Matthew chapter 16 says, you know, uh, I will build my church. Why didn't the apostles say, the church? What, what is that? What is this new phenomenon called the church? The, the Greek word ekklesia is used in the, in the book of Acts, talks about the church in the wilderness. Well, if the church was in the wilderness, uh, that means the church existed prior to the first, the first century. Okay, a couple of things. The reason that they didn't say that was because Jesus Christ was just teaching them. They didn't have any idea what he was talking about yet. They thought, assembly? Yeah, sure, we have an assembly. They didn't understand the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ yet. The disciples did not understand that. We've demonstrated that over and over and over again. Luke chapter 24, after his resurrection, then opened he their understanding that they might believe. Then opened he their understanding. They didn't get it before that. That's when the, Matthew chapter 10, he tells them to go, go, and as you go, preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers. Uh, freely receive, freely give. Well, then in Luke chapter 24, he tells them to go and preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Repentance and remission of sins. It's a completely different commission. Why? Because he had died on the cross. So this idea of the church, he's saying that he, in, in introducing the church in uh, Matthew chapter 16, they didn't say, what is the church? They didn't know what he was talking about yet. And as far as in Acts, the church already existing in the wilderness, he is describing the congregation in the wilderness as an illustration. He's not saying that this church existed in the past because the Apostle Paul identifies the church as a mystery that hadn't been revealed until the New Testament. And here's the deal. Damar's not stupid. He's just a liar. He's going to lie here again. Watch. Uh, the word itself is not something that was created by Jesus. It was a common word. If you go back to the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you'll see that the word, uh, the Hebrew word congregation is translated as ecclesia, church, in the, in the Septuagint. Uh, so but on, on the basis of the word itself, you cannot make the case. Uh, on the basis of when the word and how it is used in Scripture, you cannot make the case. Uh, what you find in Scripture, I believe... How many of you... Again, I just wish that you 
were as exalted as Gary DeMar. How many of you lowly, ignorant church members can see a difference between the New Testament church presented in Romans through First and Second Timothy? How, can you, how many of you can see that that's different than Leviticus? How many of you can see that? Is, it, is that something that's really difficult to discern? If you can read, that's right. Is, is simply uh, the word ecclesia is a, is a New Testament word for the congregation, uh, a, a congregation of believers made up initially of Jews. So the first church were, was actually made up of Jews. Gentiles are grafted into an already existing Jewish church. Uh, now, I do believe when you read in the, in, in the New Testament that there is a place for Israel, and that place for Israel is, is very, very clear. Uh, it's to the Jew first and then the Gentile. Uh, but there's only one, one olive tree, not two olive trees. And so you have the unfaithful broken off of, of Jews, and then you have uh, the elect Gentiles grafted in. It's one tree, not two. The dispensational system, in order for it to work, has to reconstitute everything related to Israel. The land has to be reestablished, although the book of Joshua says that all the promises given to Israel have, in fact, been fulfilled. <laughs> yeah, in Joshua, all of the, we, haven't, we did not read one verse that was written before they had gone into the land in Joshua. Again... How many of you think he doesn't know that? Liar, liar, pants on fire. Uh, the temple has to be rebuilt. And although Jesus said, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it back up again. And the Bible is talking about Jesus himself. They, they need an animal sacrificial system established, not only during this supposed great tribulation period, but during, the new, during this millennium. Even though G John says, uh, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You need a reestablishment of a priesthood which the book of Hebrews says Jesus is, in fact, the fulfillment of the priesthood. All of the things that the dispensationalist says must take place, Jesus fulfills in the first century in his own person. Now, the... Okay, right there. We're not saying that we want there to be a priesthood and that we had to have a temple. That's not... These arguments are so silly, they're laughable. They're just... Of course Jesus Christ fulfilled that. That's what we preach, right? He's the fulfillment of the law. Now, every bit of that Old Testament sacrificial system was pointing to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's exactly what we preach. But the Bible also says that there's going to come a time when the, the son of perdition commits the abomination of desolation in the temple three and a half years into this period that is identified in the Bible as the time of Jacob's trouble. We're not making it up. We're just saying what the Bible says. He's acting like we're creating it and that we want it. Part of the problem that the dispensationalist you know, faces is he's got to come up with New Testament scripture passages supporting all those ideas. Where in the New Testament does it say that the temple will be rebuilt? There is Second Thessalonians chapter 2, Revelation chapters 4 through 22. Not a single passage in the New Testament that says anything about the temple being rebuilt. Where in the New Testament does it say that the priesthood will be reestablished? The New Testament doesn't say anything about that. Again, again, you get to Revelation chapter 9, Revelation chapter 13. We have this whole idea of this sacrifice is taking place 
in an abomin- in, uh, as an abomination and in Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2. Well, all of the things that the dispensationalists say must take place, there isn't a single New Testament passage that actually presents it. And what they'll say is, well, those... We sure do waste a lot of time then here, don't we? Things are mentioned in the Old Testament, and they would be right. Well, we know that the temple was rebuilt. Uh, we know that the priesthood was reestablished. We know that the sacrificial system was established. Uh, the temple that Jesus said would be destroyed is the temple that was, in fact, rebuilt. Jews did come back to their land. That's what the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are all about. There is nothing in the New Testament that says anything about the land of Israel and the reconstitution of Israel. Do you see how messed up that is? But here's what you've got to get. Now, how many of you, honestly, you would say, that guy, there can't be very many people listening to him. How many of you would think that? This is, now now please don't miss this, this is the basic position of the Roman Catholic Church, the Presbyterian Church, the Lutheran Church, all, all doctarian Calvinists. All, this is the position that they hold. Now, there are some dispensational Calvinists, John MacArthur would be one of them, who would hold to uh, a, a position to be similar to ours. But he's the exception. All right, so now, here are the basic tenets of replacement theology. We'll just go through this really quickly. The Jewish people as a nation have no place in God's future plan, and Israel has no future as a nation. There is no tribulation or millennial kingdom. In fact, such prophecies became problematic which is why replacement theologians want us to see Israel not as a physical nation, but as the church. So all these things are just spiritual. The, when, when six times in uh, Revelation chapter 20, the thousand years is referenced. It doesn't mean a thousand years. That's what they're saying. The church begins with Abraham in Genesis 12, not at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Uh, D. James Kennedy had a sermon out of Isaiah um, where he preaches the church as a... Uh, Oh, I can't remember the, t- the text right now. But he takes Israel marching in in victory, and he preaches that as being the church. All right? Old Testament Israel, the church begins with Abraham in Genesis 12, not at Pentecost in Acts 2. Old Testament Israel, not physical Israel, but only those who put their faith in God are defined as the church. Old Testament law still applies to the church. Because if the church began with Abraham and continues today, then everything in the Old Testament still relates to the church. That's why when the pilgrims came over into the new land, they established all Ten Commandments as the law. And if you violated the law, you didn't go to church, they, they would either kill you, or they'd take your property, or they'd put you in jail. The Salem witch burnings. Sometimes we have the idea that that was just some small fringe group of kooks. No, that was the position of all the pilgrims and all the, the, the Puritans who came here. And they all believed what I'm showing you right here. They demonstrated that. Ideas have consequences. Here's the basis for what we believe. The church is distinct from Israel. Now, let's just look at some reasons why the church is distinct from Israel. The extent of biblical revelation. This is, we're going to look at a topic and then the, how it is different between Israel and the church. Israel, nearly four-fifths of the Bible is about Israel. The church, just one-fifth. So the majority of the Scripture is dealing with Israel, not with us. And that's clear, right? You know, uh, all right. 
the divine purpose of Israel. The earthly promises in the covenants, that was the purpose of Israel. God was making promises about the land. That's what Israel is about. Heavenly promises in the gospel for the church. How about the seed of Abraham? For Israel, the physical seed, of whom some become a spiritual seed. That's what the Galatians say, right? says, right? And then the church is a spiritual seed. We're not a physical body. We're a spiritual body. Then, what about birth? Israel, physical birth that produces a relationship. So when a person was born into Judaism, they, they immediately had a relationship with God based on their genetics, who they were from. It doesn't matter whether it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek. It doesn't matter if you're man or woman, bond or free. It doesn't matter in the church. We're born again by the Spirit, by the Word of God. That's a spiritual birth. Um, oh, let me say this. The Bible in the New Testament for the church says there's neither Jew nor Greek. The replacement theologian is going to take those verses and they're going to say that means there's no longer Israel. Well, how many ladies do we have here? Would you raise your hand if you're a lady? No, you're not. See how silly that is? It's ridiculous. What it's saying is, men and women, we come to Christ the same way. Amen? Jew and Gentile, we come to Christ the same way. Bond, slave or free, we come to Christ the same way. We don't have any reason to boast about our gender, about our race, or about our socioeconomic uh, uh, position. We have no reason to boast. We're all one in Christ if you come to Christ. That's the position. So, all right. What about uh, the headship? Headship in Israel, Abraham, the church, it's Christ. Abraham started it, was the first one in Israel, and the church begins with Christ. What about covenants? The covenants, Israel, Abrahamic, and all the following covenants, they all had to do with Israel. What about the church? Indirectly related to Abrahamic and new covenants. What's the Abrahamic covenant? That through him there's going to be a great nation, and through that nation would come the Messiah. Amen? And if you, anybody know the Messiah? Yeah, so that's how it relates to us. What about the new covenants? This cup is the New Testament. In my blood. Aren't you glad you're saved by grace? Through faith. All right? Nationality. Israel. These are all reasons. These are all reasons. We're not going to go through all of them this morning. These are all distinctions between Israel and the church. Distinctions between Israel and the church. Gary DeMar says there aren't any. It, yeah. All right. So what, where did this idea come from? Let's get a brief history of replacement theology. Here's our, here's our two lines of church history. Remember, you go back to Ant Jesus Christ, and this line comes from Antioch. Where were they first called Christians? Antioch. Out of Antioch came a line of scriptures that continues to today. Out of Antioch came a way of interpreting the Bible, literally, in its context, word for word, line upon line, precept upon precept. So all of that comes through here. And then also in eschatology, going all the way back to the apostles up until this point, Everyone in here believed that Jesus Christ was going to return and establish his kingdom on this earth. Starting here, this is Alexandria, Antioch of Syria, Alexandria in Egypt. Out of Alexandria in Egypt, you had Philo, who established a school. Origen was influenced, Clement of Alexandria, and then Origen. Origen corrupted the word of God, corrupted the way scripture is interpreted, turned it into an allegorical method, and changed eschatology. Origen hated the Jews. Right? So now, all of this, here you have Augustine, the establishment of the Roman Catholic system. Down here, the great schism between East and West Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church. Down here, the Reformation. At the time of the Reformation, salvation by grace through faith was again preached from some that had come from this line. It was also believed that the Bible was our only authority. 
And so they came and joined our line until 1881 where they began questioning the Word of God and now they're all going back to their mother, the Roman Catholic system. All right, so what does that have to do with replacement theology? Well, let's look at this. Origin. Origin hated the Jews and he believed in an allegorical method of Scripture interpretation. What had happened was he was influenced by an idea called Gnosticism. Gnosticism didn't believe in the deity of Christ and in the phys- that Jesus Christ had a physical body. And so the Gnostics hated anything that had to do with reality. Origen was influenced by the Gnostics, and he, was so, he so hated the material, he so hated the body that he castrated himself. Is this someone you want to listen to? No. Completely misunderstood the Scriptures, distorted the Scriptures. Now, he influenced a man named Eusebius. Eusebius wrote that the Hebrew Scriptures were for Christians, not Jews, and that only the curses applied to Israel. Do you hear what I said? In the Old Testament, only the curses applied to Israel. Remember who Eusebius was. Eusebius is a father of the church, and he was also Constantine's historian. All right? Next, this will surprise you, Augustine. Have we seen this, this guy through this series? There's no more the two most important people in the history of Christianity from the satanic side are Origen and Augustine. Augustine, uh, he was strongly influenced by Ambrose. He be- Ambrose believed that Jewish people were irrevocably perverse and not worthy of any good thoughts. And he used Origen's interpretation of Scripture. Augustine used an allegory to formulate what we call amillennialism. So Gary, uh, Gary DeMar that we just saw loves Augustine because there's no millennium and we're living in the kingdom today. We're going to establish it. That comes from a book that Augustine wrote called The City of God. In The City of God, I happen to have a copy of it right here. This is from the Nicene and Post-Nicene Fathers, first series edited by Philip Schaff. This book I'm going to cite is Augustine's City of God. This is uh, book 20, and it's chapter 9. He says, Therefore, the church even now is the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of heaven. That goes all the way back to 400 A.D. Augustine wrote that. He also wrote that right now, because the Bible says in Revelation chapter 20, that Satan will be bound for a thousand years. He believes that Satan is bound now and cannot influence the nations. That's why we can establish the city of God. Really? Boy, Iran is such a godly nation. Just craziness. Craziness. All right? Augustine. All right? Oh, look at Psalm 5911. I want you to see where Augustine got his position on the Jews. Psalm 59 and verse 11. This will demonstrate Augustine's uh, allegorical interpretation of the Scriptures. All right? So look at this first. Uh, Psalm 59, 11. Slay them not, lest my people forget. Scatter them by thy power, and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. So Augustine interpreted this and wrote in chapter 7 of his City of God. Uh, he said that this means that we're not supposed to kill the Jews, but we're supposed to suppress them. We're supposed to make them miserable so that every nation can see them in contrast to the Christians. This is the root of anti-Semitism in Christianity. So 
Now, remember, ideas have consequences. You say, what is this guy in 400? What does he have to do with us today? Well, let me show you. Oh, let me just say this. That verse has nothing to do with that. David's running for his life from Saul, and he's praying that God doesn't kill them, but that he just shows them that they're wrong. Do you see how Augustine's interpretation is complete fabrication? To use Gary DeMar's definition, he made it out of whole cloth. That's the allegorical interpretation of Scripture. John Chrysostom. Let me tell you something about him. He was a contemporary of Augustine, famous preacher. He preached a series of sermons against the Jewish people, accusing them of murdering their offspring and worshiping devils. He called their synagogues brothels and dens of robbers and claimed God hated the Jewish people because, his, in, in his view, they murdered Jesus. His conclusion was, since God hated the Jews, Christians are obligated to hate them as well. Do you find anything like that in the Bible? No. One of the fathers of the church. Do you want to be a good Christian? Then you'd better hate the Jews, he said, because God does. So this is anti-Semitism. This is the roots of replacement theology. Replacement theology is the stated position of the Roman Catholic Church. All right? They would, they would say this. This is not just a Baptist preacher saying it. This is the position of the Roman Catholic system. So what happened? Under Roman Catholicism, under Roman Catholicism, as it grew after about 400, Damasus, considered by some the first pope, he was the influence, he was the man that was working with Augustine to kill the Donatists in Numidia, northern Africa. They started chasing the Jews and persecuting them everywhere. And I want you to see something very interesting. Cyril of Alexandria in 412. Now, notice this right here. This was the actual beginning of the burning and killing of the Jews by the Catholic Church. This was the stated position of the Catholic Church. What happened was he led a brutal anti-Jewish riot in the city's Jewish quarter. Christians beat Jews forced women, murdered men, stole Jewish property, and drove the Jewish people from the city. From that point on, anti-Semitism mushroomed. I want to give you something that's interesting. The, man, the first time the, the term anti-Semitism is used, it's by a German named Wilhelm Marr in 1859, anti-Semitism. Before that, it was called anti-Jew, but anti-Semitism. Wilhelm Marr, Bill Marr, that name is still used to attack believers to attack God's people. Isn't that interesting? It is literally impossible to count the number of cruel, violent, merciless things done to God's chosen people. Then, during the, we'll come to Martin Luther here in a second. During the Crusades, the 11th and 13th centuries, Christian armies, not Christian, Catholic armies, marched across Europe, murdering Jewish people, forcing women, and burning Jewish villages. The church fabricated vicious lies about the Jews, persuading people they were the cause of every evil. When the plague broke out, the Catholic Church said the Jews were the ones who were responsible for the plague. Do you know why? Because the Jews were going by Levitical law. They separated the blood. They didn't eat it. They didn't touch dead things. They took their... their the result of their bodily functions and moved it away from where they lived and buried it. And so they were surviving the plague because they were clean, because they believed the word of God. 
But remember what had happened. The Roman Catholic Church had removed the Bible from the people's hands. You couldn't even own one. You weren't allowed to read it. That was in the, fifth, that was in the late 1400s. Earlier, it was just complete darkness. That's why it's the Dark Ages. The Jews still had their Torah. They still had their Talmud. They understood these laws. And so the Catholic Church used that against them, incited people against them, blamed, and blamed the plague on them. In Martin Luther's case, Martin Luther, of course, was German. He had come out of the Roman Catholic Church. He is the father of what we call the Reformation. But before we get there, I want you to see this. This, can you see this picture? This is called a Judensau. And what it is, it's a pig. And these are men with pointed hats drinking from the pig. The pointed hats was the mark of the Jew. This is a sculpture of Jews drinking from a pig. Now, let me ask you something. Do you think that would be insulting to Jews? The pig is very unclean. Where is this? This is the parish church, Wittenberg, Germany. This is on the wall facing outside so the world knew what the Catholic Church thought of the Jews. This is the same place where Martin Luther, Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis that started the Reformation, 1517. Here's another image of it, the Cathedral of Brandenburg in Germany. Here you have the Cathedral of St. Martin in Colmar. Do you see here? It's hard to picture, but here you got the pig, and there's somebody drinking from it, a Jewish man. Same image. Cathedral in Heisbronn, Germany. At the Minster in Wimfren, Germany. Same thing. Same image. It's amazing the anti-Semitism that was in Germany that was all through Europe as a result of replace. It was the direct outworking of replacement theology. So now, 1517, October 31st, we know the, found the Reformation, Martin Luther. Martin Luther came out of the Catholic Church, but he, he kept their replacement theology. He began by being friendly to the Jews because he believed that the Jews hadn't believed simply because of the corrupt system with the Roman Catholics. After a while, though, when they weren't being converted, he became very anti-Semitic, and he got to where he hated them. This is a book written by Martin Luther, very difficult to find because it's been suppressed. This is a book written by Martin Luther when he was in his 60s called The Jews and Their Lies. Martin Luther, post-Reformation, replacement theology in Catholicism, replacement theology in Protestantism. Let me show you the result of it. In our book, Why Baptist, we cite... Luther remained Catholic in his views on replacement theology, personally teaching and writing against the Jews, leading to terrible anti-Semitism and ultimately to the Holocaust. Ideas have consequences. He enabled this vehement anti-Semitism to become entrenched in German society, paving the way for Hitler's final solution. Luther wrote a book called The Jews and Their Lies. In it, he gives his solution to the Jewish problem. Here is, here is this is from The Jews and Their Lies. Burn down their synagogues, burn down their houses, and have them live in barns. Turn their Talmudic and other writings, or burn their, their Talmud and other writings. Forbid their rabbis on pain of death from teaching Judaism. Refuse them safe travel. travel. Forbid them to loan money. Take away their gold and silver. Require them to do menial physical labor for Gentiles to put them in their place. 
Can you believe that? That's Martin Luther. How many of you want me to say something good about Adolf Hitler this morning? Well, I'm not going to say anything good about Martin Luther either. Because here's the result of it. Here's what happened in Germany during the Holocaust. This is Hitler's Cross by Erwin Lutzer, pastor of Moody Church in Chicago. says this. This is a man who was a Lutheran, lived in Germany during the Holocaust. Now, if you're not sure what the Holocaust is, that's when Adolf Hitler had the, the Jews killed, six million of them in Germany. Quote, I lived in Germany during the Nazi Holocaust. I considered myself a Christian. We heard stories of what was happening to the Jews, but we tried, at, we tried to distance ourselves from it because what could anyone do to stop it? A railroad track ran behind our small church, and each Sunday morning we could hear the whistle in the distance and then the wheels coming over the tracks. We became disturbed when we heard the cries coming from the train as it passed by. We realized it was carrying Jews like cattle in the cars. Week after week, the whistle would blow. We dreaded to hear the sound of those wheels because we knew we would hear the cries of the Jews en route to the death camp. Their screams tormented us. We knew the time the train was coming, and when we heard the whistle blow, we began singing hymns. By the time the train came past our church, we were singing at the top of our voices. If we heard the screams, we sang more loudly, and soon we heard them no more. Years have passed, and no one talks about it anymore. But I still hear that train whistle in my sleep. God forgive me. Forgive all of us who called ourselves Christians, yet did nothing to intervene. That is the result of replacement theology. You've got to understand that Martin, that uh, Adolf Hitler in Mein Kampf traces the roots of, of anti-Semitism in Germany through Luther. He uses Luther to support his anti-Semitism, to raise it up. So, let me read it this way. Several hundred years after Luther, Adolf Hitler used the writings of Martin Luther, Germany's favorite son, to justify his spiritual case against the Jewish people in his book, Mein Kampf. Hitler followed Luther's suggestions to a T, but he added one more, murder. The term wandering Jew evolved as a result of organized Christendom. Historically, the church had three ways of dealing with the Jewish people, convert them, expel them, or kill them. To this day, Jewish people believe the Holocaust of World War II was perpetrated by Christians. Even though Hitler himself was not a true Christian, many who worked for him were. They were guards at concentration camps. They were soldiers. They were members of the Hitler Youth. And most good Christians in Germany did not stand up against what was going on. I can show you pictures of Lutheran churches with, with swastikas hanging on the communion table. We have the records of Lutheran deacons who were guards. Lutheran deacons who were guards at death camps. How does that happen? Replacement theology. What you believe has consequences. What about today? Surely nobody can believe this stuff today. What about our friend, R.C. Sproul? We believe that the church is essentially Israel. We believe that the answer to what about the Jews is, here we are. There's no such thing as a Jewish state to R.C. Sproul. What about D. James Kennedy? How many of you have heard of D. James Kennedy? 
because of his evangelism explosion and his desire to lead people to Jesus Christ, many Bible-believing Baptist people think James Kennedy is our friend when it comes to theology. Now, he's dead. He knows the truth now. And he was a saved man. I'm thankful for everybody who got saved through his ministry. But you've got to understand how far from us he was. His school, Knox Theological Seminary, a ministry of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, posted this in 2002 on their website. This is when he was still living, still head of the university. And this was in response to Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series. He felt like he was having too much of an influence. Bad Christian theology is today attributing to secular Israel a divine mandate to conquer and hold Palestine. The entitlement of any one ethnic or religious group, referring to the Jewish people, to territory in the Middle East called the Holy Land, referring to the land of Israel, cannot be supported by Scripture. D. James Kennedy. Now, how many of you believe God has brought the people back into the land? You all believe that? Here we are. This is by Lorraine Bettner. Lorraine Bettner lived from 1901 to 1990. He is the patron saint of the Calvinist in the 20th century. Calvinists are people who believe in predestination, unlimited election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. They call them the doctrine of grace. They come out of the, the, the Council of Dort, uh, the Edicts of Dort, and they, they trace their, their theology to a man named John Calvin. He was a reformer in Geneva, Switzerland in the 1500s. All right? Calvin called his system reformed Augustinianism. There's Augustine again. Just, he's everywhere in modern Christianity. All right? Lorraine Bettner wrote a famous book on predestination that is the book that any Calvinist would give you to read. He also wrote a book on millennialism. Let's quote from it. I want you to see in his own words what he thinks about Israel. And this man is revered today. Now, don't miss this. He is revered today, and he only died in 1990. Here we are. The continuance of this bitterly anti-Christian racial group, that's the Jews, has brought no good to themselves, and there has been strife and antagonism in practically every nation where they have gone. They have not been a happy people. One only need think of the pogroms in Russia, the ghettos of Eastern Europe, the many restrictions and persecutions that they have suffered in Italy, Spain, Poland, and other countries. In our own day, the campaign of extermination waged against them in Germany by Hitler. Now, now don't miss this. The continuance of this bitterly anti-Christian racial group has not brought no good on themselves. There's been strife and antagonism in practically every nation where they've gone. It's their fault. What did they do? They lived. He says in another place, I don't have it a quote, in, in, in a quotation here, that after God destroyed, after Rome destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70, it was a sin for them to constitute, constitute themselves as a people. Their existence is a sin, according to Lorraine Bettner. All right? We stopped right here. At the present time, we see this problem in a particularly aggravated form in the Near East, where the recently established nation of Israel has ruthlessly displaced an Arab population and seeks to expand further into surrounding regions. Some 900,000 Arabs in refugee camps around the borders, or, uh, around the borders of Israel being one of the chief 
continuing causes of bitterness. Israel is not a self-sustaining nation, and her existence to date has been heavily subsidized by American money and equipment, much of it undoubtedly having been given for the purpose of influencing the Jewish vote in this country. The mere fact that these people are Jews does not in itself give them any more moral or legal right to Palestine than to the United States or any other part of the world. It may seem harsh to say that God is through with the Jews, but the fact of the matter is that He is through with them as a unified national group. This does not mean, of course, that the Jews will never go back to Palestine. As indeed, some of them have already established the nation of Israel, a little less than 2 million out of an estimated world Jewish population of 12 million now being in that country. But it does mean that as any of them go back, they do, not, they do so entirely on their own, apart from any covenanted purpose to that end, and entirely outside of Scripture prophecy. No Scripture blessing is promised for a project of that kind. Here we are. I didn't finish it. We should point out further that those who today pop, are popularly are called Jews are in reality not Jews at all. Legitimate Judaism, as it existed in the Old Testament era, was of divine origin and had a very definite content of religious and civil laws, priesthood, ritual sacrifices, temple, Sabbath, uh, at all. But with the destruction of Jerusalem and the dispersion of the people in AD 70, that system was effectively destroyed. It has since not been practiced anywhere in the world. This man is recommended by every Calvinist in the world. And people say that I'm extreme for talking about that. This is a messed up world, folks. This is a messed up world. But I want you to know something. These people... Oh, let me throw in the last one. Hank Hanegraaff. Hank Hanegraaff, Bible Answer Man. How many of you have heard of Hank Hanegraaff? Bible Answer Man. He went so far as to call Tim LaHaye a racist and a blasphemer because of his dispensational theology. Of course, Hank Hanegraaff is a preterist, believes all the prophecies about the return of Christ were fulfilled when Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. I want to tell you the story, and we'll be done. Those of you know that when the Baptists came to America, they were rejected. In 1635, Roger Williams was banished and disfranchised. His property was taken and he was banished from Massachusetts. He bought the Narragansett Bay area from the Narragansett Indians. He didn't believe in the divine right of kings, the law of patents. Uh, the king believed he could just take things from the Indians. Roger Williams believed in liberty, and so he, he purchased it from them. He left in 1635. 1637, a man from England named John Clark, a doctor, came to Massachusetts, and he was a Baptist. And, it was, again, it was illegal, so he took a group of people to, to New Hampshire, and they wintered in New Hampshire, but it was too cold, so they went to a warm spot, Rhode Island. They went south. And Roger Williams and, and uh, John Clark started Rhode Island. Roger Williams was in Providence. John Clark was in Newport. Well, in Newport, they had the Newport Charter, the Portsmouth Compact. The Portsmouth Compact granted religious liberty to anyone who would live in Rhode Island. It was the first time that it happened anywhere in the world there was a short period of time in the 900s to priests in Armenia where some Baptists allowed, allowed religious liberty but in the western world this was the first time that it had ever happened well the Jews heard about some place in America where they could have liberty in, in, the, new, in the new country, in the new land 
They came first to New Amsterdam, New York. And Paul Stuyvesant said, get that, get that heinous, deplorable sect out of here. And they had to leave. And understand, this is the same time that the pogroms were going on in Portugal and in Spain. That's where Jews were being hung. The pogroms were taking place in, the, in South America. It was a horrible time. So Jews heard about this place in Rhode Island. And they couldn't believe it. So they came to Newport and started settling there. And they were granted liberty. In 1763, they built their first synagogue. This is a picture of it. It still stands as the oldest synagogue in the, in the United States. It's called the Toro Synagogue. If you go in there today and you go on the platform, there's a trap door behind the, under the platform where there's an escape hatch because they still didn't believe that there was any place where they could be free, where they could be safe. When you look here, if you go to the entrance of the Toro Synagogue, do you see the gate here? If you move just to the other side, you can see the steeple of the First Baptist Church in America, started by John Clark, that allowed this place to be in existence. We wonder about the glory and the, the, the freedom and the greatness of America. Why is it? It's because these people in Rhode Island gave liberty to these people. I was in Argentina preaching and I was doing a Baptist history seminar for a group of national Argentine pastors and missionaries. We had men from Panama, from uh, Chile, and from Argentina. This is our missionary, Brother Steve Thornton. So I would preach, and this is a man named Al Mueller. He's from Argentina, and he would translate for me. Can you turn down the lights for me? I want you to be able to see his face. Can you see his face? He's weeping. As I was telling the story of the history of religious liberty, and I told this story about the Jews finally having a place for liberty, he's weeping. His family was from Germany. They were being killed by the Nazis, and they fled to South America for liberty. I didn't know. So while I'm telling this story about God's wonderful chosen people, and our friendship to them and love for them and desire for them to be saved. He's weeping. The context of this message was the two lines of church history. There's a true line that goes back to Christ, the apostles, Antioch, and comes through to today. There's a false line that comes from Alexandria, Egypt, Origen, Augustine, Eusebius, Constantine. They hated the Jews. Persecution, misery, Martin Luther, death, destruction. All the way down here to what happens. All the nations come against Israel. But these folks, we're gone. Amen? You see, these things, ideas have consequences. These things, these Jewish people, they're real people. They're living people. They're the apple of God's eye. We as Bible-believing Christians, that we owe it to them. The Bible says that God gave to the Jews 
the oracles of God. It was through the Jewish people that we know God. The Bible says that we're saved by the Word of God. The only reason that I can have eternal life is because God worked through a nation of people called Israel. They were Jews. We must love them. We must pray for them. We must support the nation of Israel. When our government goes against them, folks, we are finished as a people. These ideas of replacement theology, promoted in our day by men like R.C. Sproul, Coral Ridge Ministries, the Bible Answer Man and his broadcast, John Piper, others, these concepts and these ideas, they do have consequences. Folks, we need to know what we believe and why we believe it. 